You are listening to Dialogue Dilemmas, Season 1, Episode 1, and my name is Megan Fisher. Since this is the first official episode, other than the special election episode, I will just tell you a little bit about the intention and hopes for this podcast. I would like to share with whoever may listen to this some knowledge and research and frameworks that I found useful for thinking about political conflict and dialogue, while also acknowledging that the political conflicts that we face are complicated. They're not, there aren't always easy answers and easy solutions, especially when it comes to talking about political conflicts with people we disagree with. And so that's the dilemmas part of this, is recognizing that there's not always an easy answer. You can look at things from different perspectives. And this is going to be the beginning of a few episodes that focus around the individual and what our experiences as individuals, because before we can have a dialogue with others, we need to be aware of ourselves, what's going on for us about political conflicts. And I want to give credit to one of my biggest influences when I think about communication and dialogue, which is nonviolent communication as developed by Marshall Rosenberg. One of the core frameworks that I bring is that of nonviolent communication. And so as I get into the material today, I want to acknowledge that as something that is interfacing with all of the other research I'll be talking about. Now that that's covered, this first season, I'm going to be focusing on conflicts within the Chico, California community, which I've called my home for about 17 years now. Many of the conflicts that happen in my city are mirrored in other communities though. And I actually conducted a research project last year in which one of the things that I realized is you cannot really separate local issues from national issues. So I wanna start today by talking about an article that our local newspaper, the Chico Enterprise Record, posted on their Facebook about increases in hospitalization for COVID-19 and our local public health monitoring local hospitals for the availability of ICU beds. And I'm not talking so much about the content of this article as the reactions that I noticed. There are 32 comments currently, which is a lot more than many of the news items that Chico ER posts gets. And I noticed in the comments that people are very angry. You have people who are so angry because they don't want people basically to get sick and possibly die of COVID-19. And then you have people who are angry for other reasons, like that they want their kids to be in school and they're worried about the negative effects that the isolation is having on their children for being home. And as I read through these comments, I see feelings of anger, disgust, rage, even contempt and resentment. And from a nonviolent communication standpoint, I see that the people have needs for safety and consideration and they want to know that they matter And those needs seem to be present on both sides of the divide of positions, whether people want safety because they want to be safe from COVID-19 or whether they want safety in terms of economic safety and being able to work and pay their rent or make sure that their kids are safe and not getting depressed because they're stuck at home. The feelings and needs that are present seem to be similar for both groups. And that kind of leads me into... Noticing how pervasive these feelings of anger and resentment and contempt are and how strong they seem to be 
amongst all these comments, regardless of people's positions on the issue, leads me into talking about the concept I want to focus on for this first episode that you may have heard of or maybe kind of intuitive concept or maybe it'll sound really weird to you if it's totally new, but it's called emotional contagion. And this is basically the tendency of emotions to spread between humans. So you might think of things like mob mentality where a group of people work themselves up and kind of lose themselves in the crowd. But it could happen with other feelings too, like being in a church service or somewhere where somebody's singing and getting caught up in the emotion of that and feeling joy and excitement or love and being moved with a group. This is a documented phenomenon that emotional contagion exists, and there are physiological mechanisms for that that I won't go too deeply into due to my limited understanding of them, not being a neuroscientist. But I want to talk about how this happens online, um, especially about political topics. And I have a few studies that I'll be talking about today. The first one is by researchers Ferrara and Yang, and it's from 2015. And these researchers conducted what they called a sentiment analysis on, I believe it was actually on tweets on Twitter, where they basically categorized the emotions that were present in a number of tweets and assigned them a positive and negative sentiment score. And then they analyzed what types of tweets each user had been exposed to prior to their specific posts or tweets to analyze if there was emotional contagion happening. Basically, if somebody, if a user is exposed to a certain type of content with a negative or positive emotional tone, are they then more likely to repeat that tone in their tweets? And what they found is that there is an effect So quoting from their research article, they found that prior to posting a negative tweet, on average, a user is exposed to 21.63% negative tweets, 45.02% neutral, and 33.35% positive ones, which signifies an overexposure, and that's compared to average, the average emotional tone of, of the tweets that exist on Twitter of 4.34% more negative tweets. So basically, if somebody, if a user is exposed to more negative tweets compared to the average, not necessarily more, because in this average, the user was still exposed to more positive tweets than negative, but they were had more negative tweets than the average, then they were more likely to themselves post a tweet that had a negative emotional tone, which includes things like anger, hate, blame, boredom, being tired or annoyed or fear, which includes scared, lonely, sadness, um, and also included things like cussing and negative superlative adjectives like worst, weirdest, nastiest, or grossest. And then they write, similarly, prior to posting a positive tweet, the users were exposed to less negative tweets, so only 16%, about the same for neutral, 45%, and more positive tweets, um, almost 39%. So then compared to the average, they had an overexposure of 4.50% more positive tweets. The way that the positive tweets were measured included feelings like joy, excitement, happiness, and love. So I know that's a lot of statistics that I've thrown out there, but basically this is just showing that emotions do affect people on 
social media or specifically on Twitter in this case. The next thing that these researchers talk about that I thought was interesting is how some users are more susceptible to emotional contagion than others. So they write, about 80% of the users have up to 50% of their tweets affected by emotional contagion. So if there's 10 of us in a room and we're all Twitter users, that would mean that eight of us would have half of our tweets being affected by emotional contagion. Whereas the remaining 2%, so then those 10 people in a room, obviously we're not doing that right now because of COVID, but if you do have 10 people in a room who are all Twitter users, eight of them would have 50% of their posts being affected by emotional contagion. Whereas the other two people have very high susceptibility and more than 50% of the content they post is affected by emotional contagion. They then divided people into further groups of the highly susceptible and scarcely susceptible. I believe this was the top 15 and the bottom 15% of users who were the most and least susceptible to emotional contagion. And I was really surprised by this. They found that the highly susceptible people were more associated with positive emotional contagion, while the scarcely susceptible people were more linked to negative emotional contagion. Although in general, they found that positive emotional contagion was more common. This was really surprising to me because it's basically saying positive feelings spread more easily than negative feelings online, which kind of goes against my personal experience and definitely contrasts with what I seem to observe looking, for example, at my local news, that article that I mentioned about hospitalizations increasing has a lot of engagement and a lot of the other posts about just generic things going on in the community, like football or other community events, don't really seem to have much engagement. Now that's about comments. I'm talking about something related to comments rather than tweets, but it still seems surprising to me. The next study I want to mention, done by Del Vicario et al. in 2016, I will have the references available in the episode notes for this episode. They also conducted a sentiment analysis, this time on Facebook, and their results seem a little more congruent with what my personal experience has been. So they were looking at specific communities that share scientific or conspiracy content, like two different groups. I'm not going to go in depth on how they define science users and conspiracy users of Facebook, because I just want to focus on the emotional tone and emotional contagion aspect of this research. So what these researchers found was that the more active a user was, the higher the tendency to express negative emotion when commenting. Um, And that was true for both science users and conspiracy users. And they also found that for both categories, the more active somebody was, the faster they would shift towards negative comments and posts. So they were more susceptible to negative emotional contagion if they were more active. Basically, the more time you spend on social media, the more you are likely to sort of catch negative feelings about the things that are being shared and then relay those to others. That was an analysis at the individual level. These researchers also then looked at a community level of like an entire group rather than just individual users within the group. And they found that the more activity there was in the community, the more that there would be negative comments. This was slightly different for each group, for the science groups versus conspiracy groups. But as far as I understand this research, it did occur in both groups, although at a faster rate in one than the other. Now, this does 
seem to match up with what my personal experience of using social media has been and my observations about local political conflicts in Chico when I see things posted by the Chico ER or by the City of Chico Facebook page or in neighborhood groups. When something is controversial and people start arguing, that generates a lot of activity. And I don't think that these researchers are necessarily saying that one thing is causing the other. I think that they're saying that there's a correlation between more activity and more negative emotional tone in the posts and comments, which seems intuitive to me. And in a future episode, we may go more into the physiological reasons behind that. I know a lot of people are already familiar with things like the fight-flight response and amygdala hijack and why that might occur. But we may explore that more in a future episode. But I lastly wanted to talk about a third study that I thought was really interesting, which kind of rounds out this review as well, because it's about Weibo, which is the Chinese social media site that is very similar to Twitter in its function. So we have now one study about Twitter, one about Facebook, and one about Weibo. And this one specifically was looking at emotional contagion as it relates to what they call tie strength. Tie strength or connection strength is basically how connected users are to other users. So the way that they defined that was a few things. One, they looked at the proportion of common friends that any two users would have. So if I have eight common friends with one user and 50 with the other, my tie is stronger to the person I have more common friends with. They also looked at reciprocity of if people were, they call it tweeting, even though it's not Twitter, if users were tweeting at each other. So not just, say, me tweeting at some author of a book that I've read, but somebody, me tweeting at someone and them also tweeting back at me. That's reciprocity. The last criteria for tie strength was related to the number of retweets. I'm not sure I 100% understand the way they conceptualize this, but I think it's very similar to the reciprocity of instead, but instead of tweeting at somebody or being tweeted at by them, it's are we resharing each other's content that we're sharing. And the more that two people do that in both directions, then that is a stronger tie. Whereas if I'm just sharing someone's content, but they never share any of my content or repost it, that's a weaker tie because it's only one direction. The authors of this study, which is actually Fan at All 2020, you'll be able to find in the references in the episode notes, found when you break emotional contagion out into four groups, they looked at anger, disgust, joy, and sadness. Anger specifically spreads more easily along weaker ties, whereas joy spreads between stronger ties. So basically, the more connected I am with someone, the more of a stronger relationship we have, the more that our posts that have a positive emotional tone of joy can affect each other. And if I don't know someone as well, I might be more likely to repost something that they shared that has an emotional tone of anger. That really explains a lot about how certain types of content can spread around the globe, even between people who aren't very connected with each other. As the authors write, anger has more chances to infiltrate different communities during emotional contagion because of its preference for weak ties. The increased number of infected communities leads to more global coverage, indicating that anger can achieve broader dissemination than joy over a given time period. This again matches up with what my personal experience has been, and I'll actually talk a little bit about my past use of social media and how I use social media now. 
I'm a little older, so I'm not on <laughs> Instagram, and I never really got on the Twitter train that well, although I'm trying to learn it now, especially for the podcast. But I, for a while now, have been pretty a pretty heavy user of Facebook, and I used to have hundreds of friends, imagine my air quotes here, just anybody I met, I would just add on there, and it was total chaos, and a lot of the people I knew were involved in political things and were just sharing things all the time, just sharing articles or memes without any personal commentary. So again, that was like a sign of a weak tie in a way. It wasn't like people were sharing things with heartfelt commentary of like, wow, this I, this is how I feel about this thing or this issue has affected me personally. It was just a lot of headlines and memes without that were coming from somebody far removed from me, some journalist far away. And the people that were sharing it weren't people I knew that well. And I was just, a lot of the time, just repost, repost, share, 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 automatic, without even thinking. Anything that caught my eye, I would just, that I thought had any merit at all, I would just share. And without really looking into, you know, if it had been fact-checked most of the time or anything, if I just had any emotional resonance with it, I was getting that emotional contagion about anger a lot of the time and sharing it, sharing many different posts. And that was, my feed was just covered in that. And I was surrounded by all these other people who were doing that. And then I realized in the 2016 elections that I had surrounded myself with a lot of people online that I didn't have very strong connections with and who had very different ideas about how social change happens and what types of strategies are effective for trying to make the change you want to see in your community or your country or the world. And that's okay. We all have different ideas, and I think we can learn from each other. But what I found was that when there was a disagreement about that, a lot of the people that I had these weak ties with were very quick to not be curious about where I was coming from at all and misinterpret what I was saying and not try to understand me and just start condemning me as being against their values when often we actually agreed on our values and what we'd like to see happen in the world. We just had different ideas about what would be an effective way to achieve those goals. And it was really painful for me because I thought I had this community of people who cared about similar things as I did. And I realized that we did not have strong ties that could withstand any level of disagreement or conflict. And all those feelings of anger, as Fan et al. describe, were just spreading through our network rapidly, just as described. And we weren't really spreading joy. We weren't really sharing anything about our personal lives. And I remember at the time even thinking that when people shared things about their personal lives, like personal accomplishments, I even had this idea of like it being so shallow and not understanding why anyone would want to focus on some book they read or some personal achievement when there's like so much injustice in the world. And I understand that many people may still feel this way. And I'm not trying to condemn that. For myself, I've realized that in order to sustain myself and have balance and continue to try to contribute to the world, I need to have joy and celebration and try to appreciate the good things in my life and others, even if they do seem really small in comparison to some of the injustices and tragedies happening in the wider world. 
So what I ended up doing was I completely deleted my Facebook account and made a different one with, instead of hundreds of people, only about 60 or 70 people who had actually engaged with something I'd posted in the past month prior to doing so, or who I otherwise already felt a strong connection with. And I started with, before ever having read about this research from Fan et al., I started trying to strengthen ties by, for example, engaging with people about their posts more. If somebody posted something, I might try to empathize with what they were feeling and what motivated them to post it. Or if I shared something, I would try to add more commentary of like, this is why I'm sharing this and this is why this matters to me instead of just posting it without any commentary, trying to just be a little more open and connected to people on social media and posting more things that weren't just about political injustices but having more balance of other areas of my life as well. And also trying to work through conflicts. If somebody posted something that I disagreed with, I would try to talk to them about it and have connection around it and more understanding. And that, I've had varied results. Sometimes it does lead to more connection and a sense of deeper understanding um, from people and about people. I've also had it mean that somebody decided that they didn't want to be connected to me online anymore which is a hard thing, but I have chosen to try to prioritize strengthening connections and deepening relationships rather than having just chaos on my social media. So as you're listening to this, maybe some people are thinking, wow, that sounds really good, and maybe I want to try to do that too. I'd also imagine that there's um, some people who might be having a different reaction because as I was planning this episode, I was thinking, Well, maybe there's times when you want to use anger to mobilize people about something. And maybe that fact that anger spreads along weaker ties can be useful when you want to get the word out about an injustice or something that you care about. So I just want to be clear that I'm not necessarily saying that that is always a bad thing or that it's wrong. But I do want to just raise awareness of that effect so that we can mindfully and intentionally think about when I want to do that. Like, is this something that is important and I want it to go out in the world and for people to be aware of it and maybe be angry about it because we want justice or care for some individual or group that's being affected by something? Or am I posting something that has an emotional tone of anger that I don't necessarily want to go out and have a ripple effect? And maybe there's a different way I could get support on it. Like, by talking to somebody one-on-one. If you are interested in sharing how you feel about this, and if do you want strong ties with people on social media, and do you, or do you feel like you use it for connection, or do you use it just for information dissemination, and have you been affected by emotional contagion online? Do you think that you've affected others with emotional contagion? Positive or negative, or specific with specific feelings such as anger or sadness? or joy. I would love to hear from you. You can email me at dialoguedilemmas at gmail.com or you can follow me on Facebook or Twitter. The Facebook is Dialogue Dilemmas and Twitter is, unfortunately due to the character limit, I had to leave off the S, so I believe it's at Dialogue Dilemma. And I am currently, I need to disclose that I'm currently a graduate student and doing this as a project for my graduate program. And I'm also doing some research in association with this podcast. So you'll see a disclaimer 
in the sidebar on Facebook or there's a pinned post on Twitter that any engagement with those pages may be used completely anonymously for research about this podcast and what its impact is on those who listen to it. And I would really appreciate your engagement so that I can get more data about that. And again, it is fully anonymous and you will see the informed consent notice there that has all the information on that. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll tune in next time in the future. We may explore more about those biological mechanisms that lead certain emotions to spread more easily than others and also things like the effect of media on mental health and how that affects political dialogue. And further in the future, I hope to actually interview some different community members and eventually get some people actually having dialogues across positions on the show. Once again, thanks for listening, and I hope to hear from you. Mm -hmm.